Hello, everyone. Welcome to IT, the club where we talk about all things ophthalmology over a nice hot beverage. This is the IT MedTech crossover talk on brain machine interface. Welcome to the MedTech club, everybody. It's a great club where all technological talks happen in the medicine sphere. And Noor here is one of the founders and moderators of that club. We are glad that he is uh, here with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I grew up in Toronto and a few years ago, I, I uh, stumbled upon a project with a professor of mine working on CNS therapeutics. He delivers therapies with microcatheters for mainly for treatment of Parkinson's disease using a technique called CED. Interesting overlap with what we're doing and PCI in the BCI world. This is a very exciting first collaboration between the IT and med tech club. We're excited to be diving into the topic of brain machine interfaces and exploring neurodivergence and synesthesia today. A little about me, my name is Catherine Leviste and I obtained my master's in ophthalmology at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, Florida. And we're joined by some bright and diligent members of the IT team here as well, who I'll ask to introduce themselves. My name is Gurgen Kaldra. I am a doctor currently working as a research fellow at Cleveland Clinic at the Cole Eye Institute. I'll pass it over to Grayson. Thank you so much. I'm Grayson Armstrong. I'm an eye doctor in Boston, Massachusetts, and excited to be on this IT team along with some incredible friends and Noor. So thank you for having us today. We are talking about really interesting research innovations with Neuralink, with Kernel, which is basically a brain machine interface enabling functional MRI tool that in a way is just pushing the field forward and bringing across new understanding of how brain machine connectome works and bringing applications to the forefront. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Habash, who is an incredible visionary in the field of ophthalmology, advancing technology in our ophthalmic space. So currently she serves as the medical director of technology and innovation at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. She is a rare breed of ophthalmologist that's also gone into the world of entrepreneurship successfully, starting her own healthcare software company and working along tech giants like Microsoft. She's played a pivotal role in ushering in new telemedicine approaches at Baskin Palmer. And during the pandemic, she's been a leader in the field of telehealth for ophthalmology. Her recent work with iBrain uh, Connectome and Brain Computer Interface is something that I really hope that we learn from today. I'm excited to hear all that she has to offer us. Dr. Habash, I'll pass the mic over to you. Thanks, Grayson. One really interesting topic is the iBrain um, Connectome and Brain Machine Interfacing, which I think a lot of people have sort of heard about and followed over the past couple of years with Elon Musk's Neuralink. I think um, everybody has sort of started to get into the mindset, no pun intended, of uh, brain machine interfacing. I was um, in private practice. This was maybe about six, seven years ago and was trying to see a patient um, in the ER. Just to give you a little bit of background, I'm also from rural West Virginia and had done a lot of telehealth in rural West Virginia because you know, a lot of patients nearby needed to get travel vouchers or food stamps and government authorization, stuff like that to get even to the doctor's office. My dad's a pediatrician there and uh, he sometimes had a really tough time getting patients in where they needed to go. So. We started doing telemedicine six, seven years ago, and it was a lifesaver because, you know, when a baby had respiratory distress, he would just do a FaceTime call with the patient, with the mother, and um, be able to triage and tell them if they did need to go through all that hassle to get to the ER or not. And then the other, you know, flip side of that is he, you know, if they had 
the kid had poison ivy, he was able to do a telehealth call with them afterwards for follow-up to save them that trip in. So little things like that, it was just such a tremendous help. And so one day I was in my office seeing patients and that was in Boca Raton, the complete antithesis actually. And I uh, was called by the ER doctor to come see a patient in the ER. And it was like one in the afternoon. He said, Habash, get down here right away. There's a patient with an orbital fracture. And I said, well, you know, I have like 20 patients in my waiting room. I can't leave. So either the patient has to wait five hours, which obviously nobody wants, or you can just text me a picture of the CT scan and we can do a quick FaceTime call and I can tell you what to do. Get order started. So he said, cool, we'll do that. So we did it about 30 minutes, 30 seconds later, we had orders started. Everybody went about their business, didn't think anything of it, hung up the phone. And two days later, got a call from the ER, from the uh, compliance officer who said, what the heck do you think you're doing? You can't do that. It's not HIPAA compliant. And of course, back then I, I knew nothing about compliance uh, laws or regulations or anything like that. But I was just really kind of rattled by that whole experience because I was thinking, I really thought the hospital was calling to thank me for what I did, you know, and instead I got chewed out, which was not cool. And, you know, it just kind of struck me that we needed a better way to communicate about patients and help patients, no matter where they are, if they're in rural West Virginia or if they're in an urban setting like Boca Raton. So I wrote software that was HIPAA compliant. It made it super easy because it was designed by a physician and uh, put on the App Store, Google Play, it went pretty viral. And my company was acquired by a global giant and we went public a couple of years later and um, been working with them since that time. So really gave me a really good understanding of all the different health system communications. It's really expanded since that time and ended up just sort of going down that track where I had to learn everything about regulatory stuff, compliance stuff, et cetera, and software, of course. Ended up at Bascom Palmer doing medical directorship of, of technology and innovation where tons of digital health tools come across my desk every single day that I have to review and learn about. And also worked with Microsoft's AI for Health team to do algorithmic work, to devise algorithms for eye care. So all of that has brought me to this point and my latest passion has been brain machine interfacing. Bascom Palmer was a recipient of one of the first prototypes from Kernel, which is Brian Johnson's company for a wearable brain machine interface device. And so we're using that now. I will be using that at Baskin Palmer to do a lot of studies. That's my intro. <laughs> I love it. I, I love how you just throw in the Microsoft AI bit there. <laughs> the casual mention. For those who don't know, Neuralink is basically a relatively more like invasive method of achieving brain machine interface where you are actually implanting electrodes into the you know, brain parent timer. While kernel is like a helmet like device that you wear on your head and it is able to non-invasively give you a higher resolution, you know, detailed information about uh, how the brain works. And, and that's something that Dr. Habash has been a recipient of, of the great grant from kernel. So we are definitely going to delve more into that as well. Thank you for that introduction. Yeah, we should. I mean, you know, they, they both have different ways of doing things, you know, Elon Musk and Brian Johnson, and both are correct. You know, it's just a different way of doing things. So I think definitely the most immediate possibility is the, the kernel device, which is sort of like a wearable FNIRS helmet, almost like an fMRI, but even more precise to give absolute changes in, in blood oxygenation levels. So we're really able to study the changes that occur in the brain with different disease states. That is awesome. So now if we want to move on to our second theme, approaching a time where imaging and diagnostic technology were reaching new heights of granularity and detail. How does the field respond to this? And 
what can we image and what are the current limitations of this tech? Can you tell us a bit about what the new frontiers with brain-machine interfaces hold? Sure. Just like anything, if we, we think back to the, what, the 60s, 70s, when mainframe computers were the size of a whole room. Now we all carry around something that's a hundred times more powerful than those mainframe computers at NASA um, in our pockets every day. And we carry them around like nothing. I mean, this is just, quite frankly, just the way technology goes, right? We know that every 18 months or so, it gets smaller, more inexpensive, faster, et cetera. That's exactly what's happened with brain-machine interfacing. So whereas before you would think about a big uh, MRI machine, now we have this wearable helmet, sort of like the X-Men helmet, <laughs> but a patient can walk around and do things that trigger certain emotional states or certain pain states or certain visual states. And we can see what's happening in real time without the expense and the time and the energy of, or, and the lack of access, of course, of having an MRI. And it, it's actually more precise as well. So that's kind of where we're headed now. The imaging has gotten much better. The accessibility is much better. And then of course, the, the wearable portion of that is a game changer. You know, when you really want to study the different brain states. I think that is so powerful, and especially I feel with that increased resolution and increased ability to interpret those states and being able to access, like, as you mentioned, a relatively portable solution to get that level of information as the patient carries their day-to-day -day activities. I think it's going to bring a whole new level of understanding and would love to hear from you how that pans out in something like phantom or maybe synesthesia. Synesthesia is a uh, fancy name for say that it's for, for, you know, defining this, it's kind of like a miswiring almost in the brain. So, you know, your brain, if you really think about it is sort of like, it's just an electrical bundle. Okay. And so there are these certain pathways that are normally wired, you know, the same way, but in some patients or some people, the wires are crossed. So that's a really simple way to put it. Imagine now, you know, if somebody said, you know, the letter A, but you saw red every time people said the letter A or a certain word triggered a color, or you would hear music in your head when you saw something on TV. That's what synesthesia is. It's when the senses, when the input from the senses come from different things or evoke different responses than the normal pathways. There's actually a lot of people who have these types of things. There's things like dyslexia, for instance, which are other forms of that. Autism spectrum, OCD, I mean, impulse control issues are all sort of in that spectrum as well. But as far as synesthesia goes itself, it's this crossing between different senses. And we do have some patients who have it. It's, it's not a debilitation. It's actually it's very cool, actually. I think it's just another way of seeing the world. And I think that's the important point here is that, you know, we know the world as we know the world, right? <laughs> but there are so many other things that we don't know that we don't know. And that sounds very crazy, but, you know, that's actually how I like to think about these things. I mean, another really uh, easy example is I'm a minus eight myope. So when I don't have my glasses on, the world is blurry. I don't see anything in real sharp definition, right? But when I put my glasses on, all of a sudden everything comes into focus and the perception of the environment is completely different for me, even though the environment didn't change, you see? And so that's one of the things I always like to think about that, you know, we need to understand that there are other ways of viewing the world and other ways of, of processing these sensations around us. 
I, I wanted to ask you, so something I'm particularly interested in is focal brain lesion data. So most of what I've been doing on my end is, is basically trying to improve deep brain stimulation targeting. So all the software stuff that I'm dealing with is mainly like MRI segmentation, but I just stumbled on, I guess, focal brain lesion data. I think it's Michael Fox at Harvard that that's doing all of this. And I find it so interesting. And I, I guess I, I'm having a hard time understanding how connectomics eventually plugs into this world of like brain machine interfaces. And I just, it'd be interesting to hear you talk about how you think those two worlds really collide and, and where you think that goes. Yeah, no, they definitely collide. My God, that's like a continuation of everything. So, you know, that's actually something that, that is really fascinating to me because it's one thing to just study the input, right? But then it's another thing to influence the output. And I think that's the real missing link that people forget about. So we can sit and look at brain scans all day, but if you can't help the patient, what good is it, right? We know that deep brain stimulation has been approved and used for at least, what, the last 30 years or so. And it works. It freaking works, you know? And I, I really do feel like people should study that a little bit more. I mean, that's where Neuralink is really headed. I mean, that's why Neuralink is working on the, the finest electrodes that they can possibly have that won't pierce blood vessels and and can still pierce the depths of the brain to do more stimulation like that. But focusing back um, on focal point lesions or deep brain stimulation, you know, the whole key to that is making those electrodes or those those touch points even smaller and more precise and getting less noise around them. But we know they work. I mean, they've worked for a very long time now. And uh, I just think that improving those is really the key to fixing all of these different brain states that we can study so easily now. Yeah, definitely. So last summer I got to mess around a bit with sort of a retrograde anterograde transport for, yeah, we were kind of throwing in gene therapies into the motor cortex and sort of seeing how they moved around a bit. And it, it's interesting, like, especially when you can sort of radio track the movement of that, when that overlays the connectomics, I think what's happening there is really cool. So I'm personally kind of interested in Parkinson's, generally dystonia, and this might not be as related to, to brain machine interfaces, but I've been looking a lot of, at like OCT data specifically, you know, around being able to detect Parkinson's potentially with some of this, this retinal imaging you guys are doing. And <clears throat> I don't know if you have any comments on that, like where you think that that's heading. Yeah, of course. I mean, and, and Parkinson's isn't the only one. Alzheimer's as well is a very big one. MS is another one that we do a lot of studies on. And yeah, we can use the OCT, which is a non-invasive, very quick, very easy, relatively inexpensive imaging technology to look at the retinal architecture and also the retinal nerve fiber layer. And we can detect lesions there or thinning in those pathways which are really good indicators of a disease state to come, like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, for instance, or MS. And so you can really gauge now very in a very different way, like in a very much less invasive way and, and much more precisely, you can screen for these types of things. And one of the things I like to say is, you know, we, we know that Biogen just came out with the drug, the first drug in 18 years that treats Alzheimer's, right? No matter how you feel about that drug, the process, the FDA, whatever, it doesn't matter. The point is that it's been 18 years since we ever had a viable solution to treat Alzheimer's. And now we do. <laughs> and there are other companies that are following, other pharmaceutical companies that are following that. And so this is really important because this drug needs to be given at the very first sign of Alzheimer's, for instance, right? And the very first sign of Alzheimer's is in the eye, it's in the retina, and we can see it. And we have algorithms to screen for it on the OCT. And that is really powerful stuff. Thank you for bringing that up, Dr. Pasha. I think one thing I would like to add here is uh, 
Grayson Armstrong, one of our panelists, he had one of his works where he looked at, you know, Alzheimer's and diagnosing Alzheimer's just using OCT data and looking at basically retinal images. And that's something that is interesting because the eye poses uh, as a window into the brain because it's actually like an extension of the brain and you can look at it. And that's the beauty of ophthalmology and, and just all the non-invasive imaging methods that we have in ophthalmology. I think you, you got it just right. We have a lucky specialty where we can see neural tissue and blood vessels and a lot of tissue without really needing to do biopsies, without needing extra scans or, or lab tests. And so we're very, very lucky. And because this is an extension of the brain, it is able to be visualized very easily and tested for many things. I mean, there's a few papers that show that you can detect evidence of autism spectrum disorder and Alzheimer's. You can detect someone's systolic blood pressure, uh, smoking status, all sorts of things by looking at the back of the eye with various imaging techniques. So I totally agree. Right. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Grayson. I can talk about one more thing that might interest everybody. I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago and presented some research on the brain machine of stuff that we're doing, if anybody wants to hear that, because that's kind of fitting for this. I didn't expect it to be this popular with the crowd, with the, the opto crowd, but it was. So we are studying neuropathic pain, and this is pain that comes from the eye. So we see a lot of patients who, after refractive surgery, after LASIK or, or you know, a refractive procedure, they get horrible, debilitating pain. And the problem is when we examine them, we can't really see why. We can't see where it's coming from. We don't see the obvious signs of, of pain or what's causing it. So what we started doing was using, you know, first the fMRI machine, and then now with the kernel device, we're able to visualize the pain pathway and see exactly where the pain is coming from, what is triggering it. But then the really exciting thing in the research, and this is what every, what blew everybody away at the conference, is we tried different approaches to dull it. And, you know, we were using the, the brain machine work, or actually the brain imaging, to see what happened when we applied different therapies, like gabapentin, for instance. And nothing worked as well as one thing, which almost completely eliminated the pain pathway that we were seeing on the device. And that was Botox. So just by giving Botox in the area of, I think it was the glabellar area, almost like the same pattern that you would give for migraines, for instance, it almost completely wiped out the pain pathway that we were seeing. And it was really almost stunning because when I showed those, those scans from the device, you, know, you could see the blood before all the blood rushing to somatosensory cortex um, and the trigeminal uh, nuclei, nucleus. But then after the Botox, it was almost completely quiet. And it was actually really stunning for people. So I have now tons of people calling and, and asking me if they can use Botox for all, all kinds of neuropathic pain. Uh, but I just thought that was really interesting. And that's definitely along the lines of what we're talking about when it comes to, you know, looking at imaging from the brain and then being able to feed the input back into it. That, that's so interesting. We stumbled upon something similar. Um, There's a similar team, a DBS team that was messing around with Botox. And I heard something around chronic pain and also something similar for Botox for, I think it was treatment resistant hypertension. So, so interesting. Yeah, you're right. Actually, the, for the hypertension, I, I did read something about, there was a, a cardiology study, I guess, patients after um, a heart attack were given Botox. Yeah pericardium or something, right? And it decreased any incidence, I mean, complete to zero of any arrhythmias after a heart attack. I have patients who are trapped in bed for days, you know, with, with migraines and we give them a little Botox. And I mean, for maybe three to four months, at least they are normal people again. And then whatever, you know, you have to give it again at three to four months, but it, 
does work and the lengths get longer in between. So then we'll end up going to four to six months and then six months, et cetera. Talking of cross fibers, I know we touched a little bit about uh, synesthesia already, but I think it's fascinating to, to think about what the brain machine interface, you know, brings to the table in terms of just understanding them better and understanding how and, you know, where exactly are they happening in the brain, whether uh, or not like we want to fix them. It's, it's a different, different situation and a fix is not the right word because we talked about how you know, synesthesia is just uh, a new perspective or a new way to perceiving these sensations. But at the same time, just having more understanding there is uh, definitely powerful and brain machine interface enables that, be it with the, with the invasive or the non-invasive methods that we talked about. I'll jump in. I, I have some background in synesthesia from undergrad. And what drew me into it was I, I took a neurobiology class and I'm also really big into art. When I found out about synesthesia and you have this sort of cross sensory experience with just one uh, sensory input, it was so fascinating. We did this little experiment where we had some artists listen to music and draw essentially a piece that while they were listening to the music. And when they, whenever there were sharper sounds, they tended to draw more sharp objects as well that were more well-defined and, and had more peaks maybe and more intense color. And whenever there were sort of more lulls, it was a more dull, mellow expression on the piece. So we had two contrasting songs, for example. I met a gentleman who had perfect pitch. And he has a form of synesthesia where it was like a, a letter slash number association with a color. So he told me he would add his numbers via color. So he would always get his answers correct on the mathematics exams, but he couldn't explain how he got it because he, he'll tell his professor, I added the colors together. So they just, they think a little differently and experience the world a little differently. And he's also able to replicate pretty much anything. Um, with a, a style called pointillism, which is dot by dot drawing. So it's thought that babies are all synesthetes because we have this hyper wiring of the brain and the pruning mechanisms haven't taken hold yet. What happens is as we age, those pruning genes get activated and then the separate senses are supposed to sort themselves out. Sometimes they remain and you have hyperconnectivity between these two senses. So if you get an auditory input, you might get a visual input as well. So that's very interesting. So that's, that's actually an interesting segue in some ways. What you're describing is in some ways similar to what I experienced. So I did a background. I was a music major in college going into medical school because I've always loved music and was always pretty good at it. And when I went into medical school, I got to meet a physician called David Eagleman. He works out of Texas and he's a neuroscientist who's done a lot with the brain interface connectome as well. And I've had dinner with him a few times and we sat down and talked about research issues and, and interests together. One area of interest of his is synesthesia. And when I was sitting down to dinner and we started talking and he told me that what I had experienced with music was synesthesia. When I hear music, I see uh, a pattern that's like a zigzag that goes up and down. It's also like numbers along that pattern and each sound, each note, it has a corresponding number that you can then kind of put together in that pattern to create chords. So if I hear a song, I can basically uh, learn it immediately because I can recognize the patterns and the numbers. So it's all just based on numbers and this pattern for me. It's kind of odd, but it's very helpful <laughs> when I'm playing guitar or playing music. 
I'm a big guitar junkie, so it makes for a lot of fun for me. But it's a very useless life skill, but very fun, interesting, just tidbit that I am glad that I can share today. You know, I don't think that's useless at all. I mean, that's what makes you such a great uh, musician. D.S. Ramachandran here, who I've studied for a long time. I mean, he is like an idol for me. There's a story where he fell asleep under a tree or something like that and started seeing math in his head or written across the sky. And he ended up doing all these math problems just by looking at the sky. I think that there's, a, there's some synesthesia involved in that story as well. <laughs> and then going to his, his phantom limb work, which is actually, you know, quite amazing. The theory behind, you know, his work is that the brain has a map of all its sensory input. And when patient misses a limb, that map is still there. And so then they get pain or sensations in that missing limb, but it's not coming from the peripheral nerves where the arm, for instance, would have been. It's actually coming from that map on the brain. And Grayson, that's what you're talking about. So your map is sort of mapped when you start to play music, you're seeing things in your visual cortex as well because of that. And that, that definitely is synesthesia. I think that's just an, it's almost like an added superpower you have. Statistically, they actually say that it's, Eight, synesthesia is eight times more likely to occur in creative people. I don't know. Maybe it's a superpower and we need to look into this more. Dr. Harbosh, I have a question for you. Hypothetically, if I uh, wanted to monitor Grayson's brain activity while he was playing music, would yes. you rather <laughs> the kernel moment or the Neuralink device? Because I know they sort of interface with the brain a little differently. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, definitely we'll use the kernel helmet. I mean, that's the quickest, easiest thing. We don't want to, you know, do surgery on him to get the, the information out. So, uh, Thank you. See, that's the really cool thing. You couldn't play the guitar if you were in an M MRI machine. With the kernel that's device, that, that is exactly why it's so useful. Because you can with that on. Speaking of the MRIs, I got a chance to start messing around with it. Like the seven tests are out. I'm sure you guys got pretty awesome, like imaging tech. What are your thoughts on sort of where we're going with imaging? I know we, we start talking about that a bit, but I'm, I'm really interested. So I also, my area of research is uh, image segmentation and applying machine learning and different kinds of image modalities to segment different pathologies and even anatomical structures within whatever we are imaging. So it's mainly limited to ophthalmology right now. We look at different retinal layers, different neurons uh, there and just trying to segment different layers of the retina using automated machine learning methods. And I definitely think with the FNRI interface with kernel, once we have that imaging data, there would definitely be value in trying to automate the segmentation and delineate different pathways that we are seeing in there. And I think that would help specifically as, you know, Noor, you were mentioning part of the work that we do with, with the brain is that we need to be very precise in where we are, you know, getting the readings from and at the same time, how we interpret that changes with that. That's a very big field actually. And I hear that a lot from, you know, the Microsoft folks and some of the other, you know, ML and, and AI folks that I work with, but. That's, that's a very big field now, and especially in surgical, like visualization, the image segmentation field is, is really important for being able to sort of analyze your own surgical, you know, experiences or videos, for instance, and then applying new techniques to it. I think that's great that you guys are really both involved in that and perfect. I was going to touch a little bit more. Maybe we can talk about the phantom limb and, and some of his famous experiments, like the mirror experiment. So for some patients who have paralysis in one arm, for example, 
helpful. And like Dr. Habash mentioned earlier, phantom limb patients who are feeling sensation in that arm, but are not getting that feedback, that sensory feedback going back in, it can be very frustrating because the pain is just firing. Or if they are cognitively thinking, I want to move this arm, but they're unable to, the brain kind of gives up. So what V.S. Brahmachandran did was he came up with a solution that costs like $3 to build. And what happens with these mirror neurons in your brain is if you're looking through the mirror at your working hand that's moving, it creates a mirror image for the paralyzed uh, hand or arm, the non-working arm. And then they get a sense of relief just by visually seeing that. So it's a very interesting phenomenon and use it sometimes with like TBI patients who've had traumatic brain injury. That was exactly right. So, you know, he's, I, I think that the, the smartest solutions are always the really simplest ones, right? If you asked, you know, probably a hundred people in research, they would devise these really expensive, slow, like clunky, you know, things to try to get to the same point that he did with a simple mirror. But you know, basically the, the proverbial um, experiment is a person sitting there um, with a fake arm, for instance, and seeing that fake arm in the mirror, it starts to fool the visual cortex into thinking that's their real arm and they can get sensations. And then I'm sure some people have seen this on YouTube, but there's another researcher who comes by and stabs the fake arm with a knife and the person jumps because they have the pain sensation. It's actually pretty amazing, but it's all about fooling the brain into thinking that that arm is there now and just through the visual cortex. So those are really um, interesting examples of things that we can do and study with the brain machine techniques that we have. Sorry, that was a little brutal, but it was a really funny way to uh, drive home the point. <laughs> I think that's absolutely fascinating. And the areas of the brain that connect to one another show up in many ways in ophthalmology because a large portion of the brain is dedicated to vision or eye movement control or, or, or various aspects of eye control. So I see patients intermittently with severe visual decline and they have very poor vision. They can't really see anything around them, but their brain will start to create images. Right. So this is called Charles Bonnet syndrome. Yeah. And the patients will tell me that they see people or shapes or animals around them. It doesn't really bother them. They have good insight into the fact that it's not real, but sometimes the images can be quite disturbing for the patient. And this is usually the case with poor vision. I've had a patient that had this and I did cataract surgery and it went away, but other people, it, it just shows up. So uh, yeah, very fascinating there too. Yeah. We see this with stroke patients all the time. They'll have like huge chunks of their visual field missing, but then usually it takes like six months to a year or so, but the brain starts to fill in the blanks. And you ask the patient and they feel like they function and see totally normally. It's really amazing, actually. It's almost like the brain just kind of uses the input around it to shrink that area of the visual field and fill in the blanks. So the brain is just an incredible organ. <laughs> I mean, I don't think we even realize how incredible it is yet, just yet. We really haven't uncovered or unlocked all the secrets of the brain, but it is fascinating. And to me, it's definitely the next frontier in medicine. It's definitely exciting and I think it's super mysterious and that's something that is, has been one of the fascinations for me to get into medicine as well. So I'm excited that with the new uh, imaging methods that we have, we are able to get that information now and hopefully unravel some of those mysteries. One of the things that we see in our patients with neuropathic pain, even if it's not pain per se, is photosensitivity. 
And it is absolutely connected to ophthalmic migraines or ocular migraines and regular migraines too. Things like fatigue, stress, low blood sugar, lack of sleep, hormonal changes, those are all things that can trigger ophthalmic migraines and make the photosensitivity even worse. But going back to what we were talking about before, this is absolutely something that we could map out with some of our imaging techniques. And this is one of the things that we, we treated with, with Botox, and it did relieve the photosensitivity dramatically. It was actually another part of the study where we were flashing lights at the patients, and we saw those pathways light up too. And then post-Botox, all those pathways that were reacting to the light got a lot more quiet. I think that we're living at the cusp of an exciting time in many areas of technology, but one of the most under understood areas of medicine is the full connectivity of the brain. We know this uh, is going to be the future of science, and I'm sure that with the technologies that we've been talking about, it's going to really spur uh, a future that we can barely imagine now. And the connection between the brain and Various senses and our perception is similarly interesting, varied, and every human likely has a, their own experience to share. But there are some interesting uh, outliers with synesthesia and otherwise. I think we're lucky to hear from an expert today, Dr. Bosch, and I'm really excited to have her here to, uh, to share her, her expertise in this area. This whole field is growing exponentially. You know, sometimes I, I think, what would a caveman think if they saw us holding these iPhones around or talking in our AirPods or whatever? they would think that we're crazy, right? This is how far we've come. And in another five years, even, we might be having a totally different talk, but it's just so inspiring and so exciting, this whole field and this new frontier that we're all um, embarking upon together. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think from an ophthalmology standpoint, we're so lucky that we have a lot of diagnostic uh, tools and machines that are non-invasive and can give you so much granularity and detail of the different sections of tissue without needing to cut into the eye. And now we're moving towards that from a neuro perspective as well with, you know, kernel, Neuralink may be a little bit more invasive, but as these technologies progress, we kind of have to give it time, collect the data, allow the science to evolve. And before the x-ray existed, like we all knew that you had bones in your arm, for example, but you had to cut into that to see it. So now with, with the x-rays, you can appreciate that without being so invasive about it. So it's a really exciting time for all of us to see the convergence of different fields as well. So again, thank you to Dr. Habash and the experts on this panel for sharing your time with us. With that, I'd like to close out the talk. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned for more talks like this in the future. If you want more IT-related content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Also, find us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Search for E-by-E-T-E-A-I-T. -E